When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.foodstorm.com. Bella Catering and Events are one of Sydney's and, of course, then one of Australia's best catering companies. And right now, just before Sydney shuts shit down, I need you guys to order some food from them. If you are about to be stuck inside, there's not a better time to order beautifully home-cooked meals that you can chuck in the freezer, heat them up, eat over the next few days, get your supplies going. These guys are the best in the biz. I absolutely love Maria. Her husband, Glenn, on the other hand, he's a jerk. He's a jerk. He's a jerk. No, I love him to pieces and I love them both. Guys, support your local businesses. Do whatever you can. This is me supporting Bella Catering. Um, You can find them. Their orders for home meals and their deliveries all around the Sydney area at bellacatering.foodstorm.com. Just Google it, bellacatering.com. At midnight on Sunday, Los Angeles shut down its movie theatres. On Tuesday, New York did the same. These closures were part of an urgent and necessary effort to stop the spread of coronavirus and are the right thing to do, no question. Even so, the news filled me with a sense of loss. So much of my life has been defined by and literally organised around watching films in theatres. Movie going is who I am. This is my guest today, the incredible Manola Dargis from her article on March 19, 2020, titled The Moviegoer, Our Critic Misses Sitting in the Dark with You. It's a beautiful piece in the New York Times. Manola Dargis is an essential follow on Twitter. It's at Manola Dargis, all one word. And this episode is going to kick off slightly differently than normal. I could have floridly read you many paragraphs from this incredible personal essay, but instead I'm just going to welcome you to say, my lovely guest, Manola Dargis, is incredible. She is absolutely the best living film critic in the world, in my mind. And there is nothing like talking to her. But we don't even get a chance to interrupt our conversation with the minute at hand because we are so caught up talking through every single aspect of this minute. So what I'm going to do, right to kick off the show in completely unorthodox fashion, I'm going to play the minute in question. The 22nd minute of All the President's Men. And then I'm going to let you absorb that and then hear our conversation. Here it is. Manola Dargis. Can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 yeah
Helping, it's a little fuzzy. May I have it? I don't think you're saying what you mean. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a multiple Pulitzer Prize nominee, is the senior film critic at the New York Times, and is by far and away my favorite film critic that is alive. <laughs> and on the Mount Rushmore of greatest film critics of all time, she's there. So I love to give her every single time she comes and talks to me, I like to give her an even more difficult introduction to follow. Sometimes concise, <laughs> sometimes long and florid, but I don't think there's anything more forthright that I can say that would introduce this person uh, as someone I'm honored to talk to. Ladies and gentlemen, Manola Dargis. Manola, welcome to Hi. the show. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, and I'm sorry, I just like was giggling through the, your entire introduction because it's just... Um, uh, I don't know what to say to all that, but that's very flattering, very nice. But, uh, you know, let's talk about the movie. Man. <laughs> so, we were just getting started. Unlike both of us having sort of a, a rabid fandom, if you like, of Michael Mann's work and that sort of constant revisitation, so there's a super amount of familiarity just off the cuff with uh, his movies, you're not as, you, you're not as familiar with all the presidents meant. I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it several times. I was trying to remember uh, how many times, but I mean, I've seen it at least three times. It, it's been a couple years since um, I've watched it, but um, it may have been, I was trying to remember if the last time I watched it was when I uh, was um, writing about David Fincher's Zodiac, which of course owes um, something to this movie. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, I think let's start at the beginning. We're, we're talking about Minute 22, correct? That is right. Right. Um, so it's, um, but you know, it's a great minute, but I actually am now going to backtrack and say, I, you know, I think Pakula is an interesting director because he's not exactly, he made really, you know, obviously great films, um, but I don't think that we always necessarily think him in, uh, as being in this kind of 70s pantheon, even though he made, of course, several of the most important movies of the 1970s, including, you know, The Wonderful Clute, uh, which is a very perverse movie, but it has this fantastic Jane Fonda performance. Um, and he made the Parallax uh, View as well. Yes. Um, and, both you know, so important, movies. both so important to that new Hollywood style. Like if yes, you look, absolutely, absolutely yeah. right there, both of those films. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that, you know, he, we think about the movies, um, I think more than we think about necessarily Pakula as this kind of uh, a tour, you know? Um, so I think that that's one thing. And, you know, that might be a mistake. I would let someone else make that argument. Um, but, and of course the screenplay was written by William Goldman and it's just, you could spend the entire time actually just, talking about the screenplay which is sensational yes um and, and actually minute 22 
is actually very interesting vis-a-vis what is actually happening narratively. This is a very, this is a really important minute. And so thank you very much. <laughs> I was, I was looking around, I was looking around in, in this corridor of minutes. So this is like, as we're working through, this is kind of in our third month uh, when, when people are hearing this release, which is not too far after we're recording it. And I was looking at, it, I was like, who's going to get this minute that it's, I don't, I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did it. And I'm like, that's Manola. That's, 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 what, that's the minute we can dive into. Cause it is, a, it's the, it's a turning point. It's a very indicative of their relationship. The interplay is so perfect. The pacing of the whole scene, because it starts as this huge interior scene for Woodward's character, pouring over this story, trying to get the details. And these two guys who have sort of been, you know, buzzing around one another in this newsroom finally get to actually properly interact and it's such well, a wonderful yes. scene it is and it's extremely important um both narratively and how and what pakula does visually underscores um you know how important the scene is so at this point um just to quick little backtrack uh you know the movie's opened with the the burglary now the washington post is like well what's the story here of this this break-in uh woodward who is played by Robert Redford at really his like most lovely. <laughs> um, I mean, just like, you know, both men, I find both of them very, they're very, very, they're very sexy in this movie. And I yes. think um, that that's, and they also have the best hair. They have like these Robert Redford's, Robert Redford's hair defies explanation. I cannot, I cannot understand it. The sideburn to the sideburn to sort of foppish top ratio is just unbelievably it says an alchemy in it that i can't quite understand <laughs> it's amazing well you know because his hair is tidier than bernstein's hair and this is yes. a perfect scene where you see that you know both men are wearing um well let, let, let's go back and just kind of set it narratively so up to this point woodward has been woodward is only um as we discover in this minute been at the at the washington post for nine months so he's kind of a newbie and at this point He's been assigned and he's just sniffing around and hilariously at the same time that he is starting to work, the, work this story, Carl Bernstein, who is of course played um, by Dustin Hoffman has been kind of hovering around because he thinks that this might be kind of an interesting story. And um, I went back and just watched how the two are introduced, you know, how you actually see them. Um, and there's one prior scene where they're actually sharing a frame, but it's with a bunch of other uh, journalists in an editor's room. Yes, uh, it's Jack Warden, and um, and there's they're together, and they're but they're actually kind of not quite at the opposite ends of the frame in that one scene, the first the, that first scene that they're they're actually sharing space. Um, but they're you know they're part of this little group of men, and this scene now now we've cut to twenty two. And with this scene, uh, you've already talked about, uh, you know, minute 20 and 21, but just to set it up is that uh, what's happened is that Woodward has realized that Bernstein has been rewriting his copy. Woodward's been typing, (laughs) Woodward has been typing up his copy, leaving it on a desk for someone else. I don't know if, if, I don't know really how they were doing it there. Back in the day, you'd have someone type up something and then someone else might do the rewrite on it. So it's a little unclear. But what's happened is that Bernstein has taken upon himself to take <laughs> Woodward's copy out of this, um, you know, this little uh, office desk and redo it. And now Woodward is like, what's up? 
this, <laughs> and this is really important scene because this scene, minute 22, is the creation of what is jokingly known as Woodstein. Yes. This is the creation of the partnership um, that will define the movie and is extremely important to the movie. Um, and there's a couple of things that are really notable about it. Um, one um, is that throughout the scene, um, Carl Bernstein um, is sitting down and um, it's it's Woodward that keeps going back, goes to the desk. And when we when we start scene 22, it's actually the the the, the minute starts on um, Bernstein's face kind of looking down and he's he's already dissecting the copy and what the problems with the copy is. Throughout this scene, um, throughout this minute, rather, Woodward is looming over him, which is really, I think, important. And, you know, there's all sorts of things going on uh, in terms of the visuals. So a couple different things. This is this is the first time that they share the frame, but they're not sharing the frame that they the way that they will for the rest of the movie for much of the rest of the movie. And I think it's actually, I'd have to go back, you know, shot by shot. I am almost positive when we see them again, they will always be in a two shot standing side by side on occasion. They might share a same space, you know, when they're talking, but generally speaking overwhelmingly for the rest of the movie, after this one minute, they will often be seen side by side, including in this, you know, great moment that someone else is going to have this great minute where they're in the elevator, which is a very famous shot of the two of them in the elevator seeming really up, you know, like, oh, my God, what is this story? <laughs> but they this is so right now it seems like they're, you know, visually that there's a disproportion. There's something, you know, really off about it because Bernstein is sitting the whole time and it's Woodward that's going back and forth. Now, visually. It might, you know, um, Redford is looming in the frame and, but really in a way, what's interesting and it's the way that, is that Bernstein is kind of also in control. Like it's a kind of interesting little dance here because he's not getting up. He's not saying, hey buddy, you know, you have a problem with me. And in fact, there's something very kind of aggressive about just the way he sits and doesn't, you know, rise up. Doesn't you know? feel the need to, like, address him yeah. on the same level. That's no. that's a great power dynamic shift as well as, like, this big, yeah. tall, strapping guy who's taller than him. He's like, no, I'm staying Much in the chair. Right. I've got writing yeah. to do here. Yeah, almost <laughs> as if, you know, he what he's doing is he's like, yeah, I'm going to take your copy, bitch, and you're going to like it. You know? <laughs> so there's a really, and so what you have is that, you know, you have this kind of, Initially, it just seems that Redford, who is actually also taller than than um, Hoffman, is looming. And yet, at the same time, there's the way that Bernstein is centered in the frame. He's centered. You see a little bit of um, of, uh, you know, Woodward's shoulder there. But, you know, in a way, he's kind of he's anchoring this minute. And it's it's really really interesting. Um, also, just just I want to tell people a few things. One, both men are wearing shirts, and both of their ties are kind of loose. You know, there's a kind of casualness that I think is really important here. You know, neither of them are wearing jackets. Um, there's also something really interesting that I really love are the the use of primary colors um, in this scene. Um, you can see it both in the very beginning of uh, minute 22. Um, when you're you see Bernstein sitting at his very messy desk and you see these bright colored books behind him. Yes. I can't quite read the red book. It says 1972, but I'm not really sure I what that think, book is. I think oh, it's, it's an almanac. It's an almanac it's of almanac. American politics. Yep. 
Yep, perfect. <laughs> and then you also see there's red there, and we see the blue, and then you see a green. But if you also look above, um, you know, uh, his head, you can start to see these kind of very, you know, vivid blue royal chair and uh, cabinets. And later on, um, kind of midway through our minute, when um, uh, Woodward moves away and grabs some of his notes because he's realized, of course, uh, actually, maybe that's past my minute, right? Oh, I'm it, starting it, to talk. It, it, it just, it's just skating out of your minute, but it's, but it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's, but it's just that the, the entire exchange, because the, the critical part of the exchange, really the cent- centerpiece of this little exchange happens in the 22nd minute, but it kind of starts sort of a little bit in 21, yeah, ends yep, in 23. Yep, yep. But ultimately it's, it's that entire exchange. The focal point is Bernstein's copy is better. And, yes, and so but- they, there is a, there's a little bit of that. Well, it's the foundations are there. Their copy. Oh, sorry. It's not Bernstein's copy. It's Bernstein's copy. Of Wood- rewrite of, of, of Woodward's copy is is better, and that's the thing that happens. And part of what's the power dynamic, and it's interesting, is you think that there's going to be this fight, and then there's a, this cut. The we cut away from Bernstein's face, and then there's a, a an upward looking angle of him looking down at Bernstein's, and he says, "Yours, yours is better," and that's a really, and that's the moment I think, and and that's at twenty two forty four. The moment that kind of this is the beginning of, of as I said, Woodstein, as they're called, you know, and they kind of, you know, the kind of that they become one entity. And it's a great reaction shot of uh, to, from from uh, to Carl Bernstein kind of like looking amazed that this guy seated <laughs> that, yes, the rewrite is actually better. Um, <laughs> he seems kind of shocked. You know, the guy hasn't punched him or anything. He's agreed. And then the, this uh, 22 minute, we see um, uh, Woodward go back and grab more notes. And it's a great shot of the newsroom. I mean, um, you know, and again, we see the pickup of the red and the green and the blue, very vivid blue, these colors that just really pop. And again, if you look at Zodiac, you can see it's a very different color scheme. And um, Fincher is working in digital rather than film. Uh, and he's very interested in yellows. He has a kind of yellow. But clearly anybody who's ever shot a newsroom, a, a contemporary newsroom, has studied this movie. Because newsrooms are really boring. You basically just have <laughs> a lot of cubicles, you know, and a lot of people sitting uh, and and just, you know, working on their copy. Um, what's kind of wonderful and kind of sentimental about uh, this moment, though, is that you hear the clacking of typewriters, which is a very distinct sound, which is very different from the kind of soft clicking of um, computers. Anyone working on a laptop or a, or a uh, you know a, a desktop, uh, so it's very different kind of sound. So it's very loud, very sharp sound, and it's punctuated every so often throughout this with the kind of really loud discordant sound of old fashioned landline telephones ringing, which I just love that sound. It just conjures up childhood. So, so such great sounds, both the clicking of typewriters and, and those big old handsets, you know, and the winding dials of numbers. Amazing. And so, you know, this scene really, um, uh, this, this, this minute, which is, it's so great. There's so much packed into this one minute you know you have these two different reporters it this minute begins with this kind of like they're in the midst of a confrontation they're both hungry younger reporters who really want to make a name for themselves they have a story that they don't understand obviously at this point they don't understand how big that story is how profound it is 
And yet they've got a story and they're both, you know, and they realize that they're going to be better working together. And it's just a great, it's so great because Pakula kind of really um, working with Goldman's really wonderful script is able to chart that there is a, this is a kind of dance, you know, in a way that these two men are realizing that they can work together, you know, and then that's when, uh, you know, Woodward scurries back quickly, grabs a bunch of his, you know, yellow uh, papered notes yes. and then comes back <laughs> to uh, Bernstein and says, if you're going to do to do it, do it right. You know, and this is really um, the creation um, of this partnership that and again, it's um, what, what I really, really admire is I think it's really hard one of the, I think that oftentimes, and I think we've talked about this before, one of the hardest things to do is make two people talking interesting, yes. you know, and a lot of contemporary movies really kind of um, borrow and lean on um, very boring um, uh, TV kind of, or just, you know, bad, uh, it often seems like sitcom, you know, where you're basically kind of like, you have these single shots of people just looking kind of floating in the middle of the frame. And sometimes you'll have these over the shoulder shots and it's just very boring, very programmatic. And you can kind of almost kind of use a metronome to count them off. So to actually have tension. They feel, they feel like there's more, they're more interested in the economy of making the scene happen. And like, and and, and the the economy of just like, we need to get this coverage. Here's the dialogue. The dialogue's the most Mm -hmm. important, Mm -hmm. but, but, but everything and what I've loved just relishing listening and I hope people are the same is that, you know, I've seen this a million times, but just going through every element of it, even the way that one of the shots in this two shot um, posits Dustin Hoffman with a more, with sort of like this, you know, in, in a modern parlance, we call it like BDE, like big dick energy of like, I'm not even standing up. I'm sitting down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to yes. confront you. Yes. And so mm-hmm. there's that confidence and swagger of like, I'm not getting up. Like the, yep. the copy's yep. better. And so yep. just anchoring that. And then also you're offset. You're not making the guy who's taller, more attractive, more angry. Like the, the only note of uh, dominant, real dominance in that sort of standover, it's actually sort of an undercut because he's sort of, you, because of the way that they're paired against each other. It's so nice to see exceptionally well thought out um, power dynamics in play mm-hmm. just in the two mm-hmm. shot. Whereas, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've gotten to talk about, you know, I think the, one of the greatest conversations ever committed to cinema in one of our last conversations that we had mm-hmm. um, about mm-hmm. beautiful power dynamics, just sort of sizzling on the screen in the most basic of shots. But it's, uh, it's so refreshing with these guys to see something like this. It's just, it's that, I think that's the Pacula, that's the Gordon Willis that's making, you know, the Will, William Goldman script sing. Um, before I run on any further, before we get any further, I just wanted to mention in Zodiac, the last time I can remember anyone having such Dustin Hoffman, Bernstein energy is Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery in Zodiac. Like they have got, <laughs> they, like when you were saying, talking about the Zodiac newsroom, for folks who aren't aware, David Fincher is a, I, I want to broadly say like a mentee of William Goldman. Very, they were very close. He used, he was a mm-hmm. confidant and he was a huge admirer of his work. Zodiac has a lot of all the president's men footprint, uh, fingerprints in there. But I, I think, um, you know, the, the constant smoking, the fast talking energy. I think that, you know, they're very much, uh, very much in that same wheelhouse together. Those two characters, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
what's interesting is that so the the minute the our minute 22 it opens on Bernstein's face and um Woodward is already in the frame but just a little bit of his kind of plaid shirt and back yes and then there is this really I, I just skipped over it but I think we should talk about it for a moment um is beautiful two shot of them and I think this is this is the first two shot that is like they that they are really focused on. You know yes. what I mean? Because everyone is in the background of the shot. There's no one in the foreground of the shot. Bernstein is still uh, sitting down and he's smoking because he always smokes, as uh, Redford <laughs> says, to, as, as, as Woodward says to him later, like, is there any place you don't smoke? Um, and this is the first. So we've seen a two shot of them before, but again, they were in a very small editor's office and they were part of a collective. Now they're foregrounded. And this is the beginning. As I said, this is the beginning of the Woodstein partnership, you know, and this is them. Also, I just, you know, I'd like us, I just really love how the space, because it's very cubistic almost, you know, yes. you have these beautiful kind of flashes of color the, the really popping red i mean i love this red it's really a, it's, kind of a blood red in the front you know it's great and then i don't you know i don't you know how i don't like to over analyze because i think we can um read whatever we want into into a scene but and you know maybe this was i don't know if this was based on the washington post's um actual offices though this certainly looks more glamorous than i remember the washington post of <laughs> the steven spielberg movie which i like very much but this looks a lot brighter to me yeah it's um, it's it is it is just uh because i know you're not as familiar and for folks who aren't and this might be your first episode of the show so welcome and thank you for listening it is literally a carbon copy of the Washington Post at the time in LA Burbank, in, in, they they copied it in Burbank Studios, so Fabulous. much so that Pacula even and Redford had them shipping in rubbish from the uh -huh. fr from the garbage uh, waste baskets in Washington and putting them in the in the Washington Post there, and it and it had you know the real the real Woodward, the real Bernstein, and even the real Ben Bradley. Um, and Howard Simons, when they were visiting the set, walked in and like almost had a panic attack in Burbank because they're like, what the yeah, hell? Yeah, that is so funny. <laughs> what the hell? That is such a great detail. There are, there's a couple things that as we look at the shot to think about. So as I said, I don't like to overanalyze things because I think that we can start to interpret movies into like, into meaninglessness, you know? Yes. And I think that, and so I don't want to say that the red and the green are necessarily, you know, meaningful, but I kind of really love it that it's red and green because, you know, red is this color of danger. Yes. And we've already had um, a scene where an editor has talked about how dangerous this is. You know, this is, this is a dangerous thing that these men are about to undertake. And so the red is just the way that the red is popping in the scene. You know, they could have shot it differently. It could have been, you know, but this two shot is so great because it's like danger, danger. There's something yes. happening. And of course, I also can't help but look at that green and think about the great, uh, what, what Deep Throat will say later is follow the money. Follow <laughs> you know, the so money. <laughs> so we have this nice green and red again. But the other thing is that how bright the room is. Now, that makes sense. You have people at desks and they're writing. And so you have this very brightly lit room. But it's also the way that light functions in this movie in terms of that it really begins at night, it begins in dark, and that we repeatedly go back into the shadows with um, Deep Throat, you know. And so, and of course, this is about reporters who are trying to shine light on uh, the truth. Well, so... 
this is all this is all lovely. This is just adding to the texture of the movie and the kind of meanings that are very embedded, but are all working visually. Um, and it's just it's just so beautiful to see um, these kinds of little details that are just enriching everything very much so. Um, Blake, can we talk about the acting for a second? Please, is that please. <laughs> it's really, it's interesting because Redford and, and um, Hoffman are, are very, they represent very differently to me. Here, you know, they definitely are somewhat twinned, even though they're, you know, physically quite different, as were the actual, you know, Bernstein and um, Woodward, or Woodward and Bernstein, which is the kind of idiom of how, <laughs> how we always think of them. Um, but, you know, they've been styled similarly. They have this dry 70s hair, which is pretty hilarious. Uh, there's a lot. I believe there's quite a bit of corduroy in this movie. Oh, my God. Um, this is the this is the heavyweight championship of corduroy, this movie. It is. There's never been more, more or better corduroy used in a film. Yes, it, it is quite. I, I was having shivers of 70s nostalgia, you know. Um, and, you know, it's the kind of men at work, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bernstein's, um, you know, sleeves are rolled up, but then there's also just performatively, you know, I often think I love Hoffman. Um, he is a very, but he can seem like an over actor at times. He's a very expressive, physically demonstrative performer. You know, there's a lot of things and he's kind of tamped down in this scene, but he's also, you know, his face is more reactive than Redford. Redford is a really good, like Redford is a really good responder to other people. There's a way that he has a kind of stillness in his face. You know, he has, he can have a wonderful smile, a little rakish smile, but here, you know, he's very tamped down and there's a little bit of a kind of sardonic smile, which is about the only thing that we get um, from, you know, this kind of change. But He's a really good reactor, you know, and I just think that that's that's really his face when he's when he says yours is better is not all twisted up. You know, he's not overselling the moment because is really doing a really nice job here. It's very for for a scene that could have been two guys standing nose to nose with their fists clenched. This is very kind of low key to an extent, you know, and we're watching two men again, two ambitious men kind of, you know, having a kind of power negotiation. This is really about power and each kind of ceding power in some way so that they can join forces. But I really, really like, I think Redford sometimes doesn't get, has not always gotten the great respect he could get. But I think that in part, it's just because of his performance style, which is a much more, you know, seems much more naturalistic as if he's not doing anything when, of course, he is doing a lot. Um, and I've seen him be more demonstrative and more kind of, you know, physically expressive. But I really like how low key he is in this scene. And I think it really kind of helps establish is another thing that helps establish the dynamic between these two men. You know, and I also love that his reaction the way Hoffman responds is that his, his he be, you know, his mouth drops open a little bit, which is kind of great. He's like, wait, what? You're not going to beat me up? You're no. Not, you're good. Wait, you know, it's, it's, it's fabulous. It's so, it's so great. And I think that, you know, I think two of his most iconic performances, Redford, at this time are obviously Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and then probably All the President's Men. And you're so right that, you know, they're, across there he's got Newman, who is so magnetic, but also has like a 
like a more overt style. Like it's fast talking. He's he's got those. He's got great expressive eyes, even when he doesn't say anything. You're always waiting for that punctuation of that little grin. That there's some like level of thought or some some cheekiness that's about to happen and he can be very stoic as sunnets and in this it's so perfect because he is like he's pulling back and he's he's got this um i want to say it's like an information extraction quality in this where he's his stillness and silence in the way that he interacts with everyone makes people seemingly talk faster around him talk faster give him more information um and that's a very and you know it seems so. It seems so weird to say, but it's like he's like pretty much the most attractive and well-known person in the world in this movie. And for him to just be not giving, not 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 overemphasizing that his own power in that way, and just being still and trying to not react where possible, and trying to take the aggression out of things, and try and just be still. I think is a really these are. They're small, but they're such calculated choices, and that's what I think makes him so fascinating. He he just he's mesmerizing in this movie. The the Hoffman performance is obviously good, and he's right in the peak of sort of his peak Hoffman right now. You know, he's been well, the seventies are Hoffman. You know, this is territory, so yeah. I think this is a but um yeah no I think you're right. I think there's that I think that Redford is a charismatic performer, but he's not doing charisma here. He's not been yes. asked. The way that, you know, when we were just talking about Butch Cassidy, you know, I, I, I just adore Paul Newman, but that's a very, it's, it's a very, he's a very charismatic performer and he's like shining, you know? Yes. It's really interesting here. And I think it's because also Redford, I mean, you know, they're playing these characters and, and it's, it's, there's also, there's a kind of meta quality here about there are two people who are used to talking to people for information to solicit information. And here you're kind of seeing them like do this little kind of extraction of information that we're going to see throughout the whole movie as they talk to different sources and potential sources and people who shut down and don't shut up. So we're actually just also watching how two people know how to deal with other people. Does that make sense? We're watching journalists who know how to deal with journalists. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about the scene, as as you know, uh, you you mentioned it at the beginning, and then I just kind of ignored it, but I, I want to bring it back. <laughs> is this is all about um, how do you tell a story? You know, this is a yes. very this is this is very much I can imagine. You know, William Goldman having a good time writing this. Um, you know, you buried. You know, he didn't tell us the information that we needed at the top. And here Hoffman is explaining. Sorry, I keep calling him Hoffman and Bernstein, but Bernstein is explaining to Woodward why his version didn't work and what he did. He brought, you didn't mention uh, Colson in the beginning and I moved it up and it's about narrative structure. You know, they're also at this point talking about narrative structure. And <laughs> so it makes you think about how this movie is itself, you know, kind of winking at you and telling you like, it, it may as well be Goldman saying I brought Nixon right up front. You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> like, like that, that's what I love. I love that you said that because it's the kind of weird it's the strange moment of like, oh, why, why at the very beginning of this movie do we see this, you know, this omniscient projection of Nixon flying down from the clouds, you know, getting this resounding, <laughs> this resounding welcome in Congress and, and, you know, being like this conquering hero almost it's because that's what this movie's about. We're not going to have to stamp on it for the whole time, but it's like, that's the, that's yeah. the opening paragraph. This movie you is do about... Not- Right, you do not bury the lead. No, do not bury the lead in the most classic sense. It's so, and this scene's all about it. And it's like, keep bringing these guys up front. 
You know, like people yep, don't have yep. time to read to the third paragraph to find out what the hell's going on. Well, and also it's about, you know, it's about don't bury them. And what, what are they, what are these two journalists trying to do? They're trying to uncover things. They're trying yes. to bring them to the foreground. So there's also, it works on that level as well, that they're actually, it's like, you got to bring Colson up because he's part of this story. And of course, Colson is part of the larger story of <laughs> yes. all the president's men, <laughs> uh, you know? So it's just, it's really lovely, but I can imagine Goldman kind of, you know, smiling as he was writing this entire little, uh, you know, exchange about how do you actually tell a proper story it's quite <laughs> <wonderful>. <laughs> you, you love you love the dialogue of when a writer who's really good is working on a story and can have that sort of flurry it's just a beautiful mm-hmm, little mm-hmm, bit of poetry mm-hmm. that's in this whole film it really is it's really really it's really great it's what, a- what do you think it is manola about pacula's you know when we're talking about that new hollywood pantheon what what do you think is the escapable like, what, why is his name not there, but why then, when we look back, do you see people that are so heavily influenced and how, and how much respect his body of work commands? Because uh, for folks who are listening, and it hasn't, and, and as Manola and I are uh, recording this, it hasn't been released yet, but the, the very lovely Liz Hanna, who is the co-writer of The Post, uh, has been on the show, which is a real mm-hmm. treat. Oh, and, wonderful. And Liz and I were talking about, you know, a setup of a shot during the post, and she was watching the great and singular Steven Spielberg just sort of crafting up a shot, working with his team, getting ready to do this setup. And as she was sort of just hovering behind him, learning and watching, she said to him just in his ear, sort of quietly, they were sharing a moment because she goes, God, this shot is so pacular. And he turned around and he turned around and looked at her and sort of held his hand on his chest and like said like a real warm thank you. Like he was honored. No. <laughs> and, and, and so since hearing that, it's, it's kind of warmed the cockles of my heart since hearing that going, you know, it's so amazing that such a, you know, such a storied and such a louder director as Spielberg is still influenced and, and still inspired by his peers who do great work and is still mm-hmm. trying to put his own spin on some of that mood. And I just, I wonder like, you know, if, if someone like Spielberg is so moved by that, how did he, how is he still escaping some of that, that, well, that do? I mean, it's, a, you know, the kind of establishment of who becomes, uh, who is seen as an auteur and one, an auteur who, you know, outlasts his or her moment, you know, and outlives yes. it is really interesting. I mean, you know, all the president's men was, was very well received. Obviously it was, a, you know, it was a critically acclaimed movie. Now just working on this one movie, it's, it seems very, it seems very, uh, unshowy, you know, yes. this is not a movie filled with a lot of what I would call kind of visual, um, kind of virtuosity or, mm. or, or let me amend that actually obvious visual flourishes more in the sense of there aren't like these really long tracking shots. There are very few kind of, you know, I mean, he has to work within the confines of, you know, of, of this, for instance, this one set, which is a spectacular set. Yes. And he does a lot with it, you know, I mean, but this is really difficult to make an office exciting, but you know, they, <laughs> you know, it, yes. it, it just is. Um, but it, it, he does manage it. And, of course, he is working with um, some really great people, including uh, Gordon Willis, uh, the cinematographer. Yes. Um, you know, so there's a lot of uh, – they create a lot of visual interest with the colors, 
with um, kind of uh, the, the shapes, you know, there were these great thick pillars and there's a lot of cubistic kind of, you know, cubism, uh, kind of um, uh, like rectangles and squares. And there's, you know, and how you move people and blocking and staging. Yes. And I don't think, for instance, we actually talk enough about, you know, what you do inside the frame. I think we, we tend to, and I'm just saying overall critics, tend to kind of concentrate on camera movements, let's say, you know, and we're used to certain kind of swoops and the long steady cam. I mean, we think of Goodfellas and the long walk into the, the nightclub. These are the things we remember, you know, whereas this is a lot of like, this is a movie that has to make visual interest with someone on a telephone in front of a typewriter. Yes. You know, and they do that. But yeah. it's, you know, there there are a few, I'm not going to, there are a few punctuating moments. There's an amazing overhead shot that you're going to talk about later. Um, but this is about making, making something come alive in a way that is not kind of, you know, calling attention necessarily to um, the filmmaker's visual prowess. I don't know how else really to put it that way. Yes. And yet again, if you look, at, I mean, you could just do a whole a whole hour talking about the visual difference between the night between the the newsroom and the garage where um, where they meet, you know, where Woodward meets Deep Throat because they're very visually, you know, very very uh, twinned. You yes. Know? There's a lot of tw- there's a lot of twinning in this movie. Uh, in starting with Woodward and Bernstein and the way that they're going to be from now on often seen standing or sitting side by side. That's really interesting. And then there's the twinning of the newsroom, the bright newsroom with the the certain kinds of lights and the garage. You know, it's really, really, really interesting how he works that. But other than that, other than, you know, um, a few a few. You know, this really beautiful uh, overhead shot that you're going to be talking about later in about, what, 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, about, minutes. We're, about eight minute, we're about eight minutes away yeah, from the beginning right of that, that beautiful uh, uh, Library of Congress overhead uh, uh, yeah, uh, really shot. That's the most kind of um, flamboyant visual flourish, I think, in the entire movie. I mean, you may disagree, but I just think like – and so for the most part, we're talking about someone who is working within – um, a newsroom, but I think that that someone like Spielberg is going to know that this is incredibly difficult. Yes, to make a space like this just pop off the screen, yes. and to make two people talking in a room the hardest thing in the world. You know, <laughs> yes. just it is the hardest thing. Is really difficult. You know, it's it's and you're not you don't have explosions. You know, you don't <laughs> no. have you don't have all the easy kind of stuff that makes people like lean forward yeah there's there's no bomb there's no bombs going <coughs> off there's mm-hmm. you know the, at the beginning of the movie it's very even the surveillance um uh, especially the you know the uh the burglar's offsider who's sitting on the walkie-talkie who's watching the burglar unfold from the from the building opposite the the watergate hotel even in that scene um it's it's played with this very underhanded we're not going to put any you know that that sporting phrase. Not going to put any shine on the ball. There's not going to be any showiness. It's just it, it it is what it is as they're unfolding in this sequence and and that sort of I don't know that restraint, but also very beautifully framed restraint is like so well, right. it's and so hard because there's so exactly. much so much stuff you can do to make that more exciting, thrilling. You know, um, you know, huge huge angles, offsetting things, tension, like make it feel like there's a bomb in the scene, but there's not, and they don't do any of that. It's just it is. 
what it no, is. No, and instead, um, what what he does um, rather remarkably is as the story gets, and you're going to be discussing this, gets more complex, is create an atmosphere of intense paranoia, mm. you know, bordering on fear. And you're doing that with two people sitting in a room, talking to each other, perhaps sometimes in shadows, or just <laughs> the lowering light. And it's the way the actors are able to convey information and just the kind of the scariness. I mean, this is a really, really scary movie. Yes. It becomes. I mean, I think there's this one scene that you're going to be talking about later on that is just, you know, I think is a master class. Um, it's with, um, oh, it's the actress. What's her name again? I'm so sorry. Uh, Jane Alexander. The bookkeeper, you know, Jane Alexander. She's... That's an amazing scene. That's an amazing, amazing She's wonderful. exchange. She's wonderful. Yeah, just great. I also realized that I misspoke the kind of the danger scene, that the danger conversation um, comes actually much later. I apologize for that. I had I thought it had come beforehand. So the red that I was saying that was kind of pulsing um, in this, uh, in our moment, um, I think might be even a telegraphing moment. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it could be. So. Yeah, well, in a moment that it says don't bury the lead, it's just giving us some nice red foreshadowing. That this exactly. is probably a bit of an alarm. <laughs> just a little bit of exactly. foreshadowing. <laughs> this, this, this could be, this, there, could, there could be a problem. And it's also what is so good about this is that things are alive because there's just a real command, I find, in the way that I perceive, especially in this scene, there's a real command of like getting a sense of who these people are on the interior. And so then when mm -hmm. you get big climactic moments of fear um, um, or, or, or this sort of like little moments of exaltation when the story breaks into a new into a new echelon when it's getting higher and higher, especially after around the bookkeeper scenes and things like that, that, that Redford scene that we're going to talk about much later when he comes out of the car park, but he's not sure if he's been as successful to mm -hmm. not be followed is just so spectacular. Cause it makes, it's mm -hmm. the, it's the same stupid feeling that you have of yourself, but they turn that into the most high tension paranoia cinema of like, I'm just walking out of a car park. I don't even know if I'm going to be followed or if I have been followed, but it, it, it's, it's like your body's pulsating with this fear that you're creating internally. And what's scary about this movie is that it's, it's not an unwarranted fear. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's not an unwarranted one. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you're going to start the movie with the most powerful man in the world, <laughs> yes. And Nixon at the time, we already understand the stakes, you know, which is really, you know, it's such a great way to open the movie, as you said. And also it's, it's, it's situating it in, in, in reality and history, you know, and, and for this movie, just re very recent history. I mean, that's, that's also, what's really exciting is that this is happening, you know, just a few years afterwards. And so there's a kind of, you know, they didn't have to like wear period clothing no. <laughs> to make this scene. They're, no, this they're wearing actually, their clothes. You know, exactly. They're wearing the, 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 this is a, they're catching something that has just happened, you know, and is still unfolding. And um, it's really exciting. I would say that, you know, this is a kind of this minute. And again, I'm just uh, re-looking at, the, the shot, the two shot of them um, in the newsroom. And you just see this beautiful choreography of bodies behind them, you know, and you just, 
you just think about how this is almost a lost art in movies is, you know, arranging extras so they don't look like they're just walking for the fifth take, you yes. know, when are so bored. But these, there's a dynamism, you know, visual kind of um, tension that is being created here, the color through shapes and through bodies in motion. You know, it's just, it's really great. So again, I think someone like Spielberg would recognize that this is a high level of craft and technique. I mean, really, really high level. I think um, I think we can both use the modern parlance of our time and say game recognize game. You know, like yes, game exactly. recognize game big time yeah. when great filmmakers. And look, you know, you look at the folks who, you know, Gordon Willis pretty much worked with Pacula from, you know, a, a whole chunk of his filmography. And so you've got to know that, you know, you know, the Coppola's of the world and, 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 and Woody Allen and those guys and those contemporaries would not, would know his work and admire it because they would have seen it first in Pacula's right. work. They would have seen it and gone, I need to work with that guy because he gets it. Right. Yeah. No. And also, I mean, this is really beautiful. I was just watching a movie that I won't name and the, the, the light was so flat, you know, <laughs> and this is, there's so much going on. And again, I love all these high angle shots, you know, when you're looking again at like Redford against all the light that's beaming above him, you know, it's really kind of the fact that you can even turn a really boring ceiling into a, a dynamic visual field is pretty remarkable. You know, <laughs> yes. it's like a runway above his head or something. It's quite, it's quite astonishing. It's, it's <laughs> a great people watching. And I think that, like you said, that the visual dynamism of people having purpose in the space around them makes mm -hmm. it live like it live and breathe. It's, it's not only these colors popping, it's not only the shapes and the textures of the ceilings, like, which is, you know, which, you know, you, you can just see later as one of those dingy, you know, stained offices that all of us have probably listening have worked in at one stage of our lives or another or, or visited. <laughs> and, but, but it's, it's alive with people, with purpose, with things happening. And it's just, there is nothing that'll take you out of a scene more than a bad extra in the background. And it's probably just a tired extra or someone who doesn't know what their what their what what their character in inverted commas is meant to be doing, but everyone in the rest of this scene seems like they their story. I, I love that they all feel like their stories are just as important as the story that we're watching unfold in front of us. That's so uh -huh. cool. That's re like yeah. that's a real pleasure. Right, and I think that's something. I mean, you know, when you think about the old classical Hollywood and the heyday of like the great character actors, and each character actor would carve out a little space in the movie, and it would just be like you would think oh, I could easily follow that character actor into a whole nother movie. They're so vivid yes. and so alive. I just feel like you don't really get that. You know, there's something else we were, when we were, I meant to mention when we were talking about um, the acting and the acting and the react and how the two performers look at each other. There's a moment when, and I think it's around, I'm just trying to, yes, it's when, um, it's around 2248 or so, and they've, you know, uh, <laughs> Woodward says, you're, you know, you're right, and then he's walked away, and the camera is back on Bernstein just watching Woodward walk away. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that's really interesting is that, that you know, I, I, I love, again, I love Dustin Hoffman. I think he's a wonderful actor. I also think, like, if I were an actor, I'd always be aware of Hoffman trying to kind of upstage me in some ways. Hoffman is breathing really heavily here and you actually can fit, see his chest kind of moving. Like, yes. you know, you, you have a cut, you cut to uh, Woodward walking and coming back. Um, but you can kind of like the shot of, uh, then, then there's another shot of Bernstein. You can actually see Hoffman kind of like breathing heavily, 
you know, and this, this is, this is not just, this is, this is someone giving a performance. The breathing is part of that performance. Of like <laughs> yes. His chest is kind of heaving because even though his face is like not very, you know, he's not moving a lot. He's more like, he, cause he's stunned that Woodward has said, you're right. Um, is that he's kind of like, you can see that he's relieved, like he's breathing heavy, like he's just pulled off something. And wait, what? That worked? But I love that he's breathing heavily, that he actually makes you see that 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 Bernstein was like, I don't know if he was bullshitting or something, was trying, you know, doing this kind of face-to-face macho thing with uh, Woodward. With, 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 but but I, that you see the breathing is I, so great to me. It's so wonderful. I, I also think it's kind of, it's shock a bit, like the breathing, because Maybe. like yes. because because I think yes. you put it so perfectly, yes, which is there's right. such an anti-conflict in what happens that it's like it should be a nose to nose or a toe to toe or a like a more mm-hmm. a, a more grandiose um, right like two a, young ambitious reporters at the Washington Post. You kind of think <laughs> that they would be standing up with their fists clenched, you know? Yeah. But I think you're right. I think it is shock, but I also think like. He stood up to him, even though he didn't physically stand up to him. You know, he was like, "No, I, I made it better. You buried the lead. You know, yeah. you, you didn't tell him about Colson." And he, I think that that moment where you really, I'm, a, I was just aware as he's staring off, his mouth is slightly, his eyes are open, you know, and his mouth is open, and he, but he's breathing heavily. You know, there's just like it's the aftermath of this confrontation where you've just something has happened. Maybe it's shock, right? We don't know. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is, this is Hoffman doing a lot just by breathing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In the 70s, Justin Hoffman could deliver a, 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 a full portion of an Academy Award winning performance just sitting and breathing. <laughs> yes, but that, that is really true. I mean, they're, they're both, I mean, look at the way that they look at each other. Mm. They're not yelling. No. They are maintaining their inside voices. You know, their faces are not, you know, all bunched up. There's not like no one's yelling, no one's faces, no one's working their eyebrows or curling their lips at each other. This is very, these are two, this is a very understated and interesting negotiation of power. Yes. And you know, you know what's so great about this as well, Manola, and I don't know if it, like, it's something that you've come across is if anyone who's ever worked in an office environment whether for, for any time, you know, especially in the modern sense, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, forced cordiality and uh-huh. anti-conflict mm-hmm. and what i love sure. about this moment and and you know obviously that's <laughs> largely for protection and things like that but there's sometimes that people love to play on that so they'll you know they'll mm-hmm. they'll <laughs> there's a lot of passive aggression and things like that and you have to use your inside voice and everything's just overly cordial and then you walk away and go fuck like that person really pissed me off just now and i love here that there's there is genuine conflict that they're they are having a conflict moment but they're just dealing with it and dealing with the conflict with with like pros like they're just they're Uh they're they're taking uh it there but uh it's not it's there's not softened it's still tough it's like hey man like it's better but Uh it's still very candid and tough and they're not and he's not denying oh i didn't do anything he's just like i'm just polishing Uh like i'm just giving Uh it a bit and then when he's Uh actually interrogated about it he's like no it's better you took the third paragraph i brought it up front Let's take them both to the copy desk, see how we go. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that admission of that, it's just like, oh, it's, it, all, it, is, it has a little bit of like catharsis. Like, okay, it is better. Let's get cracking on this thing. And then, yeah, of course, no. 
before the moment that we are robbed of as well, because as with this show and and as with a lot of the projects that I undertake, the focus of it. But there is then the beautiful punctuation that I think only one person in the whole world could do, um, which is which is Jack Warden um, saying, "You're both on the story. Don't fuck it up." Nice way well, for us. I, I think a nice way for us to maybe end the show. <laughs> like you both on the story. Don't fuck this up. Well, because wow, now we're gonna now for the next uh, rest of all these minutes that you're gonna have, we're gonna see how they don't fuck it up. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is always a pleasure to talk to um, my favorite living film critic, the incredible Manola Dargis. And thank you so much. This has been such a great excavation of this minute Manola you're the best thank you so much for being a part of the show oh it's been a delight thank you for having me on this show I really enjoyed it huge thank you to my incredible guest Manola Dargis at Manola Dargis on Twitter and of course at the New York Times almost every single day you can find all of her incredible work and if you're in America and you're lucky enough she does have a couple of books with a compendium of uh, some of her film reviews, which unfortunately are nowhere to be found in this country. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at Minute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show if you guys want to support us we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our patreon if you can spare even a couple of bucks a month the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show the amazing increment vice and any other amazing shows that are a part of one heat minute productions thank you so much in advance if you can't support us you don't have the cash that's totally fine but please subscribe rate review and share the shows we would love if you are digging the show share them with like-minded film folk around the place thank you so much once again for listening to this episode we'll catch you on another episode of all the president's minutes and another episode in the one heat minute productions feed very soon